Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me as this week we get to speak with Neil Edmund, who's the founder of Money Time. And we have a great conversation about his life, his career, and what he does today. If you enjoy this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because there's more than 300 of them. Now we're getting straight into this conversation. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Neil Edmund, who's the founder and CEO of MoneyTime. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because we've gotten to know each other fairly well over the last few weeks, thinking about what you're doing and how you do it. But before we get into that and money time, what I like to do is go back in time with people. And in your case, I'd love to know about what life was like for you when you were, say, four or five years old. Life was pretty special for me back then, as much as I can remember. I was uh, born in Dunedin, and we lived out at Macandrew Bay, which is a small uh, little village, I guess, out along the peninsula, okay. uh, out of, outside of Dunedin, about uh, 15 minutes' drive from the city. And we had the harbour in front of us that looked back at the city. There was uh, farmland all around us. It was a very uh, nice place to grow up. Wow. It's been my first seven years. That's great. Is that... Oh, so... By way of where Larnet Castle is, is it that direction or is it another? Yeah, word? probably about halfway on the way out towards Larnet's Castle. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we visited Dunedin um, in recent school holidays, went in a camper vans with the kids, so driving around, and we went to the castle, and yeah, it was amazing um, just to get out of the city and see all those views in the ocean. Yeah. Sure, yeah, the peninsula is just uh, stunningly beautiful. I was just down there last weekend for the uh, All Blacks test match, and we actually ended up driving out to Tyro Head to look at the albatross colony and it was the first time I'd been out there since I was a kid and it was it's just so beautiful and and to see those birds flying around was was just really awe-inspiring actually. Yeah that's great so it sounds like nature was a big part of that childhood then you were outdoors a lot or? Very much outdoors and I come from very much an outdoor family we're all sporty we all enjoy nature uh, we get out into it as much as we can. So it's, it's my happy place. It's where my soul sings. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And and from an early age, um, what sort of things interested you? Um, you know, like thinking in primary school and things. What things interested me? Uh, I think just uh, being active. I, I just enjoyed using my body and and challenging myself physically. And as I as I grew up, I got introduced to tramping. I've d- I've done an awful lot of tramping now around the South Island. I've actually done a lot of activity all through New Zealand, as it turns out, to mountain biking, tramping, kayaking. And I, I've uh, so blessed, feel so blessed to have been born in New Zealand, mm. where we have all these amazing opportunities to spend time in the outdoors. There's, the, the nature is beautiful. There's such a wide range of it, and there's very few people around to muck it up. <laughs> or have to bump into along the way. You know, yeah. He's just got all this amazing space, and it's basically we've got it for ourselves. It's a it's a great observation, and I sometimes meet people from Europe who are here traveling, and they're like, "You have the best bits of Europe in one tiny little island." You know, by comparison, you got the glaciers, the rivers, the mountains, the ocean. Like it's all there, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I've been fortunate enough to have done quite a bit of traveling, 
and always so appreciative to be able to come back to New Zealand and know that this is home and that there's all of these different uh, places you can go and activities you can do in New Zealand that, that are really special that that uh, as you say are just so condensed into a small space there's just so much variety and range of range of things to do and see in mm. a, a, a very small space we're extraordinarily lucky in that respect yeah that's awesome and when you're out i'm just going on a little tangent here but when you're out in on a tramp you know heading towards a hut or something what is it that you enjoy the most about that i've, I've learned to enjoy the journey uh, it's been a it's a bit of a difficult learning experience i guess in my early 30s uh, i was very goal oriented and results driven as a young man and it'd be fair to say I probably got a bit burnt out and I didn't look after myself too well and I had to take a step back and regain my health and as part of that process I learnt that the journey is just as important as the result if not more mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't have control over the result and if you pin everything on the result, you may end up feeling like you failed or you're, you may be disappointed, um, whereas you can control how you respond to the journey. Mm. That is largely within your control. And so w- when I'm tramping, I just really like to reconnect with nature and appreciate what's around me and, and give gratitude for just the opportunity to be able to do it Mm. yeah i really like that it's actually a great principle to apply to all of life i think isn't it because so often we think if we get to this point or if we achieve this thing that's the moment of happiness but i don't know about you but getting the job title that i'd been aiming for for years you know it's a little bit hollow once you actually get it on your business card it's like oh was that what what's next you know (laughs) all of that work and actually the point is as you say it's that it's the journey to get to the place and it's the journey along the way rather than the destination I think it's important to still have the goals and targets of things you want to achieve but if you tie your your happiness to achieving those then I think ultimately you're going to end up being unhappy because once you achieve them like you say it does feel a bit can feel a bit hollow Mm. it's like okay I'm here now now what and and for me you have those objectives or goals that you want to obtain those targets and you reach them and to me that's then an opportunity to reset okay so now I'm further along the journey what's next Mm. I don't pin my happiness to it I'm I'm satisfied and proud to have got there but in terms of um, my happiness, it's like, okay, cool. Now I've got myself set to do the next stage of the journey. Mm. And what's that? I'm excited. What's next? Yeah, those are great thoughts. And I really appreciate that perspective. It's really good. And coming back to your childhood, you know, coming through high school years and things, were there subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Or, yeah, did you know what you wanted to do with your career? Not really. Uh, being at an all-boys school, I went to Otago Boys High School. Their focus was very much on maths and sciences, mm-hmm. numbers, and I was okay with them, but it didn't make my heart sing. It was like that was the best that was on offer, I guess. Um, I could also write, but the way that English was taught wasn't particularly inspiring. And so 
when I left school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do other than that my father was a businessman and for want of something else to do or lack of something else to do I thought okay well I'll I'll do a commerce degree mm-hmm. at university and then see what happens right it's interesting isn't it what shapes us and and the paths that we choose and so you're right that's a, a model there's somebody who that's what they do so might as well do that. <laughs> sure, you'll, you'll be interesting to hear this as a as a solicitor. I also did a law degree, so I did a BCom LLB, and the intention was that that would set me up for uh, top level management, C level management in a larger organisation. Mm-hmm. And I found that commerce and law are quite different in their approach to things. Commerce, or certainly marketing, which is what I majored in is about creativity, finding new ways of doing things, mm. explaining things in a different way, com- communicating in a unique, unique way. Whereas law is about following precedent, as you've got laws and you've got precedent and you've got torts and you've got um, rulings that you have to try and fit a fact situation into or apply to a fact situation. And I found very quickly that I'm more, much more creative-minded. I'm not actually very good at following rules. Mm. If I don't see a good reason for them, I yep. really rebel against that. Yeah. Uh, so so I did the five years. And I finished my commerce degree in three, but I stayed on for two years to finish my law degree because right. I was really enjoying university. I was at Otago. It was a fantastic time of my life. Five years of just uh, doing a lot of socialising, a lot of learning a lot about life and about other people and about myself. Mm-hmm. And there's, just, there's an awful lot of freedom down at Otago to be able to express yourself. And there's a lot of support from the other students to do that. Mm. We're all learning about ourselves and we're all beginning to understand how life works and how relationships work and where we fit in. Mm. And there's a, there's a huge amount of permission to do that. And I just loved it. I just love the freedom to be able to explore all those things. And so finishing my commerce after three years, I thought, there's no way I want to leave now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm here for a good another two years. Thank yeah. you. So the law is a good excuse to stay a bit longer as well. Huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did end up getting a, a summer clerk position with Bell Gully Butterware in Auckland uh, in my penultimate uh, summer holidays. And I didn't enjoy that experience. Sure. And with all due respect to Bell Gully Butterware, a fantastic law firm, and uh, obviously extremely successful, but it just wasn't for me. Mm. It was a big, big law firm, and it was very results-driven, and they weren't particularly interested in the interns, the right. summer clerks. Right. They were far too busy on more important stuff, and I was bored for three months um. while I was there. They did offer me a job, but I politely declined yeah well at least you got the experience and then you knew that that wasn't for you right that's true that's that's a good sign (laughs) i'm very grateful for the opportunity yeah yeah it's interesting just riffing off of those comments about the law because i do i am a lawyer um what i've found is that it is easy to become disillusioned about the law um for for young lawyers and and it does feel at the beginning of your career like it is moving this piece of paper from here to there, you know. But what I've found is that as I've had longer, these days I'm able to bring a much higher level of creativity towards the client and talking about what do you want and then thinking about the structures that will help them achieve it. So actually I've 
very, I think, kind of unusually, but am able to outwork some of that creativity, which is a real, um, yeah, it's it's a source of energy to me rather than being a, oh, another precedent to to look at, you know. <laughs> sure, I, I had a very limited experience, yeah. and it was shaped largely by my experience at university. Yeah. And then the, just the being a part of a big organization where you were just a number or a cog in the wheel, I yeah. think that was more, th- more the issue. Yeah. Um, and I've got a lot of friends who are solicitors. We went. I went through law school with them, yeah. and they enjoy their jobs and and get a huge amount of satisfaction out of what they do and helping other people yeah. uh, create the results thereafter. So I'm not anti-law. I'm not. Yeah, it's yeah. just that it just wasn't for me. I don't yeah, know. yeah. No, that's good. So you get to the end of the degree. You're offered this position. You know, that's that's pretty prestigious firm and pretty you know attractive. What was it that you did next? I wanted to get into marketing, uh, uh, specifically export marketing. Okay. Uh, I'm a very proud Kiwi. I think we do things very well here. We're good people. We have good ideas. We've got great energy. And I wanted to uh, explore ways that I could express that internationally, mm. promote, help promote New Zealand, help promote New Zealand products. And so I... After I finished varsity, I went to Wellington and spent two weeks just knocking doors of export companies, asking if I could help them with their marketing, or if they needed somebody, a grad for marketing. And the short answer from all of them was no. <laughs> but I was very fortunate in that my father had had a marketing consultant working with him on his business, which was a builders and hardware supply company in Dunedin, based in Dunedin. And the consultant was also happened to be my lecturer, my marketing lecturer at university. Hmm. And I had him for two years at university. And at the end of my course, I went to him and said, this is what I want to do. I want to work for an export marketing company. Do you have anybody you could introduce me to? And he said he didn't, but he said he did have contacts with some large New Zealand companies that he could try if I liked. And I said, that would be fantastic. And so two weeks later, I got a call from the management development manager of Fletcher Challenge, which back then was the largest company in New Zealand, and said that they were interested in interviewing me. Hmm. Wow. And that's quite funny because I got up to Auckland, which I don't know very well, and I got a bus to approximately where I thought Fletcher Challenge headquarters were and then I realized that I'd got off on the wrong side of the motorway and I had no idea how to get across and it was only five minutes until my interview was due to start (laughs) so I I ran I ran for a couple of k's I guess to to find a place where I could get under the motorway or over I can't remember and and arrived at my interview covered in sweat and puffing and I was going to be talking to the the, the management development manager of the of the biggest company in New Zealand. This was going to be a, be a fantastic <laughs> a big opportunity. Big opportunity, <laughs> and I arrived just not in great shape. But she was really good. She could see that what had happened, and she said, "Just take your time, have a glass of water, catch your breath, and, right. then, we'll, and then we'll start." Wow. And I ended up getting offered a job um, by her or by Fletcher Challenge um, in Challenge Properties, which was their property division. Mm-hmm. So I did property for a couple of years, shopping centre management, commercial property, and shopping centre marketing. Mm. And I enjoyed that. That was really good experience. 
but I'd always wanted to travel. My parents were big travellers and had instilled in me the the excitement and and pleasure satisfaction of traveling mm. so uh, after two years I said thank you uh, for the opportunity but I'm going traveling right and I knew if I'd stayed on any longer they would have promoted me into a role that would have been really hard mm. to say no to because I was in a management development program right and I think once they'd settled me into a significant role it was going to be a lot harder to leave and I wanted to travel on my own uh, under my own steam you know on my own not not through a company mm-hmm. so so I quit wow so what happened next did you have a plan of where you were headed or yeah I had a good plan I ended up well I wanted to travel around Europe so I bought a combi van in London with a f- good friend of mine and we traveled around Europe for three and a half months with our partners. Wow. And that was a massive eye-opener in terms of what the rest of the world looks like, how they operate, how the people are. And it was also a fantastic experience in terms of living together with three other people in a confined space for a long period of time. Yeah. <laughs> Those vans are great, but they are small. I mean, you know, for four people, four adults. <laughs> yes. No one, no one had warned me. No one I'd spoken to had warned me that that could be a challenge sure. or would be a challenge. And it was a huge challenge. And by the end of the trip, none of us could talk to each other. Right. You know, didn't, whether it was between our partners or between our best being best mates, we literally, none of us could talk to each other. Wow. That's, it's like a whole social experiment. <laughs> put, pe- put four people in a combi van, send them around Europe and see what happens. <laughs> yes. I actually, I'm really jealous though, because my wife and I lived in London and we always had, had these plans. We're going to buy a combi van. We're going to just quit our jobs and just travel around and go you know, to Germany, to Paris, to Hungary. We're going to just see everything. But we never did. <laughs> so, yeah, at least you got to see see all the sites. I got to see um, pretty much all of Europe. We, my favorite was uh, Eastern Europe. Mm. A lot of the old, the history and the culture, a lot of the old buildings, architecture, but uh, with some influence from the East, mm. uh, particularly Turkey. I, I love that. Uh, and we, we found people really friendly everywhere. They love Kiwis. and mm. uh, We're very neutral and have a good reputation overseas as being friendly people, good mm. people, honest. And so we felt welcome wherever we went, mm. which was a really nice feeling. And there's just so much to see and do in Europe that the history mm. just makes you feel pretty insignificant as a Kiwi. Into, you know, we've mm. got, what, how many years is it now? Two, 200 years or whatever, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah it's true. Thousands. If, if, if you're in rome or italy or somewhere and it's like oh you know this this um coliseum or something it was built when (laughs) it's an amazing thing isn't it yeah so at the end of that trip did you then stay on in europe or were you no i went to the states okay and and i wanted to spend a season skiing there and ended up working and skiing at in solitude which is in utah Mm -hmm. solitude mountain uh, which was an awesome experience. There's, the snow over there is just mm. way better than it is here. Light, fluffy powder most days. I, I'd grown up skiing. My mother, Annie, was a New Zealand ski champion, and she'd taught us to, how to ski when we were very young. Mm. 
at, uh, at Coronet Peak. And so I'd always wanted to go overseas and, and experience skiing overseas. And so we got to do tree skiing in Utah, which I'd always wanted to do. And we got to do a lot of powder skiing. So it was just a dream come true for me. That's awesome. And were you working in like a hotel or something at the ski resort or elsewhere? I, I was lucky enough to get offered a role as a hygiene, sanitary hygiene technician. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was cleaning toilets. Right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's actually interesting. So we share something here that... I moved to Japan when I was 20 years old and I worked at a ski resort and I was in a hotel and the hotel, so similar to you, I did whatever they needed. And for the first half of the day, you know, vacuuming, making beds, serving in the kitchen. And then the second half of the day, it was like, here's your lift pass. You can go ski. And in Japan, they've got really good powder as well. It's like, you know, the ice that we settle for here, it's just, you can't compare it. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's an amazing thing to go and spend every day skiing, right? We should be actually be up on the hills today. We the should. The snow would be yeah. awesome. We've had a lot of um, rain in, in Christchurch in the last few days, and I'm sure that there's a good base up there now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I guess, would that have been lots of international people as well there, or was it mainly Americans? Or? Mainly Americans. Um, we were in... Little Cottonwood, sorry, Big Cottonwood Canyon, which is more of a locals valley. There's okay. Solitude and Brighton ski fields, which are both essentially local ski fields. The, the valley over was Little Cottonwood Canyon, and that had Alta and Snowbird, which were, was certainly Snowbird, was more of a, um, an international resort. But, it, but if, uh, on the other side of the range, there was uh, Sundance and... Oh, where was the one where they had their Winter Olympics? There one year. Anyway, that was that side of the range was much more international. So right. we were more local locals. ski fields, yeah. which was what I wanted. Yeah. I just wanted to hang out with the locals. They were able to show me all the good runs, and we used to do a bit of climbing and ski down shoots, and wow. I ended up skiing stuff that I wouldn't have done if I'd. I don't think if I'd been on an international field and yeah, I hadn't met these guys. It was guys. more like a groomed place that you have to go yeah sure oh, interesting and so you get to the end how long were you there for the the, the winter season three months yeah. three months yeah yeah and what next <laughs> what next um another thing i'd always wanted to do was tree planting okay. so we bought an old uh, ford uh, station wagon and this is with my my girlfriend at the time and she painted a new zealand flag on the tailgate <laughs> like the whole tailgate was it was a blue blew forward and the, she painted this New Zealand flag on the tailgate, the whole thing. And we just drove up to Vancouver and we knocked doors of half a dozen tree planting companies and asked if they needed tree planters and, and they all said yes. However, we didn't have green cards. We were just winging it. So eventually we found one who's, who were that desperate that they, they took us. Mm. And so we flew up to, we were flown up to Lake McKenzie, mm. which is about halfway up. Uh, from the US border up to the Arctic Circle, so it's uh, getting quite far north. And uh, we were in a tent camp uh, by a, a major snow-fed river, which was pretty much in flood because it was spring and all the snow melt was coming down the river. And and we got planting, and uh, as I said before, I really enjoy being outdoors and I like physical activity, so it was just a, a great Perfect. job for yeah. me. I, I really got stuck into it, and I was the top rookie planter in the company that year. And was getting paid good money, 
and and my girlfriend Sophia, she was the camp cook, and she was actually earning twice as much as what I was. Right. Yeah, she was a good cook, and and but working some big hours. And that was all going really well until uh, immigration came along and checked people's social insurance numbers, and we didn't have one. So ah. <laughs> we, we got um, put in jail in Prince George for, a, that right? for a, wow. a night and you know, spent a night in the cells. And then they said uh, they charged us with uh, being illegal workers, and we didn't have any, any uh, uh, comeback on that. So. Uh, we had to, they confiscated our passports and, and they said you, there'll be a, a court hearing for you in Vancouver in six huh. weeks' time huh. in, at an immigration court. And we said, well, okay, well, what are we meant to do over the next six weeks? And they said, well, you'll figure it out. <laughs> but well, we weren't allowed to work, obviously. So we went down to Vancouver and hung out with a, a friend. And, and after three weeks, I just said that this is crazy. We just are running out of money. So we managed to get the hearing brought forward, pleaded guilty, and they deported us, and right. we went back to New Zealand. Wow, interesting. Well, quite a, um, a, a turn there. I wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you end up back in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, at that point, because sometimes when you're overseas, your identity as a New Zealander gets solidified and formed and I have an accent but I actually grew up here so for me going overseas helped me understand how much I wanted to end up in New Zealand was it similar for you or how were you feeling at that moment absolutely uh, having done all that traveling and, and seen a lot and met, met a lot of people I realized just how fortunate we are mm-hmm. to be New Zealanders and I was so grateful to be coming back to New Zealand and being able to call it home mm. I always always have been grateful ever since mm. it, most mornings I wake up and just give thanks. Yeah, I'm so so happy and pleased to be here. Yeah, well, that's the right attitude. <laughs> and what happened next in terms of your career? And then I'm keen to sort of bring us up to today. So talk us through maybe the next couple of years. And you'd mentioned that you'd had, sounded like a bit of a burnout phase as well. Yeah, wh- when was that? Oh, crikey. Uh, that's, there's a few stories in there. But... Um, the my, my father had died not long before I went travelling, and my mother was really struggling for some meaning in her life. She'd been a stay-at-home mum and had done a magnificent job of raising us three kids. Mm-hmm. And she decided that she wanted to set up a a wine shop somewhere in Christchurch, promoting Canterbury wines. But the only place she could find that she thought was appropriate to have this wine shop was in the art centre. And the only space in the art centre was the art centre restaurant, which was way bigger than the space that she needed. So she asked my girlfriend and I if we would help her buy this business and, mm. and run it, run the restaurant. And I thought, I don't want to do this. Uh, I, I've, I, the door's still open for me at Fletcher Challenge. I'll, I'll go back there. But uh, And I was really torn. But I could see how... How, hard, you know, how much she was hurting and how much she was struggling because uh, my father's death was quite sudden. And so I said, oh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hand. Mm. My girlfriend was experienced in restaurants. Mm. And I said, okay, yeah, we'll give you a hand. You know, we'll be here maybe six months and then we'll go, I'll go back to Fletcher Challenge. Right, yep. Well, it's a lot harder running a restaurant than I ever imagined. And yeah. uh, we were still losing money after a year. Yeah. And, and we would have gone under if any hadn't been able to keep pumping capital into it and um, and after five years we finally got it to a point where it was consistently profitable 
during those five years, I went traveling and I spent six months in South of backpacking around South America. Okay. On the third day I was there, I, I drank a jug of water, which I understood was agua pura, which is pure water, and having requested it, thinking that that was the way that you describe filtered water or right. sanitized Clean water. water, yeah. But they just gave me a jug of water from the tap, um. and I filled myself up with amoebas. So I spent the next six months backpacking on antibiotics, wow. which just completely drained my immune system, stripped out my gut. So when I arrived back, I had a magnificent time, absolutely loved South America. and But when I got back, I was really sick. Mm-hmm. And it took me 18 months. I couldn't work for a year. It took me 18 months before I could operate as a normal human being again. Wow. And so that was the the burnout, and I did a lot of personal growth work during that time with um, counsellors and and naturopaths and homeopaths, and um, I, I, I did a lot of um, work around my spirituality as well, mm. and that was all tied into it. And although it was a really difficult time, I'm really grateful for having had that opportunity mm. because I managed to clear out a lot of baggage, I guess, that I'd been carrying up until that point. Yeah, and which has sort of liberated me, mm. and I felt a lot lighter as a person mm. since then. Mm. So even though it was tough, it was a, a rewarding experience. Mm. It's often like that when you look back at life, the periods of the most gross are caused by some factor, you know, a hard factor, something that you're going through. Yeah, it's a, it's an because it, the good times, well, just keep going, wake up tomorrow keep going <laughs> but yes. the bad times they force you to ask hard hard questions yeah yes and there were a lot of there were a lot of hard questions in that during that process so when i got when i uh, got it came right from that uh, i i married my wife monique we're actually old family friends families have known each other for years my father and monique's father good mates mm-hmm. and we'd spend a lot of time with them as families so we knew each other well mm-hmm and realized that we had all this in common and that we actually also really liked each other. Mm. And so we got married and I needed to have some stability and uh, some financial stability. So I ended up, uh, well, I started uh, a, my own marketing consultancy. Mm. Actually, I uh, started that before we got married, but found that that's quite hard going. It was doing consultancy for SMEs. I was doing work for small businesses that often didn't have the money to pay me. Mm. and even though the businesses were growing it just wasn't fast enough to be able to keep in, engaging me and so I then started contracting myself out uh, on longer term contracts as a marketing consultant to mm. various companies and so I ended up with half a dozen sales and marketing manager roles for companies in Christchurch mm. really diverse range of industries so I was in apparel, RFID wool insulation, um, uh, <laughs> uh, we ended up bringing construction workers into Christchurch from the UK after the earthquakes. So a really, really broad range of activities. I was uh, also sales and marketing manager for a, a municipal composting system. Hmm. So uh, yeah, really interesting, wide variety of roles. And I was still doing my consultancy in between, in between, and that was all incredibly stimulating. I really enjoyed it, but it, it wasn't uh, creating a, 
a steady cash flow uh, for our family. And it also wasn't doing something for me, which I've always wanted to do, which was do something for a lot of other people that would leave a legacy. I've always felt that I'm here to make a difference. And my, my parents instilled that thought in me. And that was certainly uh, drummed into me at um, a school I went to before I went to Otago Boys High School. I was fortunate enough to attend Waihi Preparatory School, which is a small boys boarding school just north of Timaru. And it's a prep school for Christ College, which I didn't end up going to. But Waihi was an amazing experience in terms of every boy counted. Where there was only a hundred boys, we were a sm- really tight knit community, and we all got on, or we had to get on. It was just like a large extended family, and we all had each other's back. And we and the headmaster at the time, Peter Prosser, was really big on saying, boys, you have been given an opportunity that very few other boys will get. And you really need to make the most of it by going out into the world as young men and making a difference. That is your responsibility. That is your role. That is your obligation is to go out there and be the best you can be and make a positive difference in the world. And I had that going all the way through in my mind, in my being, I guess, all the way through this time that I was doing my marketing consultancy in the sales and marketing roles. And I was thinking, yes, I am helping other people with my consultancy. I'm helping them with their businesses and sometimes in their personal lives. But I wasn't getting to a point where I was impacting a lot of people and getting to a point where I could really say that I'd left a legacy, Mm. that I'd actually created something that people or other people and myself could look at and go, uh, this is something that for the common good that's been created that wasn't there before. Right. Yeah. And so it's amazing to me, just stopping you for a second. It's amazing that that had had such an impression on you as a young person that it would then carry on through, you know, and that decades later, that would be a impetus or something that comes back to, because I know a lot of what you're doing is helping young people today. And so I just, it's an interesting link there that you yourself were influenced as a young person in school and that affected you and you know what you're doing today you're going in and and helping young people as well yeah so how did that outwork for you you're going through this questioning and like what am I going to do with the rest of my life and how is that going to play out um yeah what happened next sure I guess uh, after the role of bringing construction workers into Christchurch for the for the earthquakes that role finished and I was then back with a blank sheet of paper. I didn't want to go back to consultancy. I had this legacy thing going on in my mind. And so I was talking to a fellow parent at a, a year nine meeting, or beginning of the year meeting for parents. And this is Paul Davis, who went on to become a co-founder of, of Money Time. I was talking to Paul and we're talking about what we were doing. He was investing in, in companies, um, in particular social enterprises. He was an impact investor. And I started looking at buying a business myself. Spent quite a bit of time looking at businesses. Couldn't find anything that I thought was worthwhile. So we we're having a coffee one day and he said, why don't you do something for yourself? Why don't you start something of your own? Mm. And I said, I'd, 
I'd re- I really enjoy doing that, but I don't know what it would be. I just don't have a burning p- desire on any one particular thing to, to do. And he said, what about financial literacy for kids? Mm. And I said, what about, what about it? Right. <laughs> and he said, how's that, you know, how's that getting taught? He said, I don't think our sons have been taught financial literacy at school. And I don't think that my son knows an awful lot about money or money management. I haven't taught him, and uh, I should. Perhaps I should. And he said, I think this is something that would be really worthwhile doing. Mm. And I agreed with him straight away I, because that was mirrored my own experience. I don't, my kids hadn't been taught it at school. I certainly hadn't done a very good job teaching them. Mm. And so I set about researching what was available in the market for kids and discovered quickly that there wasn't a lot. There was a company called Banker, who's also based here in Christchurch, that were doing really good things in schools. And I, I took a good look at Banker and thought that this is great, but it has some limitations. And I thought I could develop a program that would, that would be better. And I thought if we can build a program that is successful in New Zealand, then this is something that we can export overseas, which mm-hmm. comes back to that sure. motivation of wanting to do something good in New Zealand and then share it with the world or, or sell it to the world. And so... It was a bit of a bit of a well, it was a massive learning curve to be honest, because I didn't have any financial qualifications. I do not have any experience teaching children other than my own kids, mm. and I do not know or did not know anything about software. Mm. So it was a big challenge, a daunting. <laughs> yeah. And what year was this? Those conversations? When were we talking? This about? is uh, getting towards the end of two thousand and seventeen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what happened next? And then I'm really keen to understand what you're actually doing today and going out into schools and where you are. Sure. So I spent six months just researching the market, um, what was out there, not just in terms of financial literacy, but all uh, digital programs Mm -hmm. for um, teaching kids. And essentially what I ended up doing was just cherry-picking the best bits out of all of these programs and then putting them together into a financial literacy program. So our program's called Money Time and it's a self-directed program, which means the child does all the learning or can do all the learning on their own. Mm-hmm. All the modules are self-taught. There's 30 lessons or 30 modules that start at how they can earn money, put it into a bank account and earn interest, and how they can budget prepare budgets, how they can spend wisely. And then we we get into the things that most kids aren't taught by their parents, which is how you go about buying a property when you don't have all the money. Right. How How you can invest your money so that it grows in value and you end up creating more wealth than what you would have done just through a salary or a wage. And how you, how businesses work. To, to most young kids, business is just this big concept of an organisation where people go and spend their day and somehow that generates money mm. and they don't know where the money goes or what the people do. And so uh, that, um, that was my experience growing up. My father was a businessman. He went off to work each day. I didn't know what he did. Yeah. Um, but the business made money and he got paid. I wanted to uh, teach kids how that how businesses work, profit yeah. and loss, 
um, manufacturing versus retailing versus wholesale goods, services, all that sort of thing. So it's really about breaking down barriers to understanding, isn't it? Because it is an incredible thing when you think about it that we the core subjects would be English, mathematics, science. You know, we of course the children need to know this stuff, and it's true. But actually, the day-to-day practical reality of life, there's a lot of uh, financial side of things that nobody ever teaches you, and you're kind of, well, go go to tertiary education or whatever and or start your first job there's not been any sort of background into well what's a mortgage how does it work interest rates you know i think the reason for that is that parents weren't taught it when they were kids yeah and they've had to learn what they've learned through trial and error and a lot of them have made mistakes and lost money or not made money when they could have and so they feel like a, a fraud when it comes to teaching their own kids. And so, and they also don't want to be embarrassed by admitting that they don't have all the answers. Mm. They literally do not know uh, what to teach the kids or how to teach them, you know, what's the, what's the correct thing to teach them. Mm-hmm. And so rather than tackle that as a challenge, they just shy away from it and think, well, we, we've managed to survive with not having been taught it, they'll survive as well, Mm. which is not a great approach, really, for the kid. Mm. And so I thought, well, let's solve that problem by doing the teaching for the parent or for the teacher, because teachers weren't taught it either. Mm. And so I, I, I thought, let's do the teaching. And so all of these 30 modules, the, the child works through it themselves as a lot of interaction. They have to solve equations. They have to click and drag on words to complete sentences. They've got true false questions. There's quizzes. And so what we do through the 30 modules is is provide them with all the pieces of the jigsaw that is money management. Mm. So we teach them about insurance. We teach them about warranties. We teach them about security on a debt. And so it builds up their vocabulary so they have an understanding of what all the pieces of the puzzle are. And then we show them how those pieces fit together. And it's, it's a, a broad approach, if you like. It, we don't go into an awful lot of depth. But by the end of the program, what they come out with is a really good basic understanding of how all those, what all the pieces are and how they fit together. And so it, it normalizes it for them. And so money management is not something that they're ignorant of or something to be scared of or afraid of. It's, it's this is how money works. This is how you manage your money. Mm-hmm. And we're not prescriptive in the program. We don't say you, you should do this or this is the best thing to do. We say this is how it works. You're, you can make your own decisions on that, mm-hmm. but at least you have the information on which to be able to make the decision. Yeah. And the thing that we, we did that differentiates the program from many other programs is that we gamified it. And so what that means is at the end of each module, they do a, a multi-choice quiz. And for every correct answer, they get money paid into a virtual bank account. As they go through the program, there are a whole pile of things that unlock that they can spend the money on. So they can spend money on their avatars. There's half a dozen shops that unlock. Each shop gets progressively cooler gear 
but right. it's more expensive. They can transfer their money into a savings account and earn interest, and we peg the interest rate to to what's happening in the actual environment. So at the moment, the interest rates are pretty low, two percent. I think we've got it in the program at the moment. Uh, they can donate money to charity, and we say that's a good thing, and we off, we reward them with generosity medals for doing that. Hmm. And your avatar looks pretty cool with yeah. the generosity medal. Wow! Or they can invest it, and so they can invest it in their education, in term deposits, in shares, property, business, or collectibles. Hmm. Each of these investments gives them a return at the end of a module that, on average, is equivalent to what they experience in the real world. Okay. So. Term deposits are three percent, property is six percent, shares eight percent, business twelve percent, and collectibles fifteen. And but we also teach them about risk return. The average return is going to be those percentages, but that's not the return they're going to get at the end of each module. Sometimes it goes up five percent, sometimes it'll be down ten percent, and they get to see a graph right. that represents this. And so there's there are, it's a sawtooth graph it's a sawtooth line but they can see that over a period of time it goes up mm. the thing i really like about it is that it's teaching the principles that will then apply through their whole life um, i'm curious about two things the first one is what the age range is that you're targeting like how old are these people um, and then also just tell us a bit about the rollout and how it integrates into schools and where it is right now in terms of getting out into the community sure so the program was written for 10 to 14 year olds and we did that for two specific reasons first one is that that's the age that most kids are starting to earn their own money and get to be able to make their own spending decisions on their own money right so they're, they're getting pocket money or doing getting paid for chores it's their money they, they've got ownership of it and then they get to decide what they're going to do with it so we want to create good good financial habits right at the get-go right when they're just starting to learn about the power the power of being able to spend money mm. let's let's give them good positive experiences right at that point so that which will hopefully develop good habits as they go through life mm. second reason is we wanted to target kids in at intermediate level in schools that's because in intermediate and primary schools, you have one teacher per class, per classroom. And, so, and that teacher decides what the kids get taught, in what order, how they get taught. At secondary school, you've got specialist subject teachers, math, English, science, social studies. And to get them to fit a three-month program into their curriculum is much more of an ask because they've already got stuff in there that they've been teaching the kids. They've got to take three months worth out to fit money time in. So that's that's problematic. So that's why we've targeted uh, primary and intermediate schools mm. and, and the 10 to 14 year olds. We introduced the program into schools in 2018. We found very quickly that schools didn't have the budget to pay for it. Financial literacy is not a core subject. And so by the time it got to an elective subject like financial literacy, the budget had been spent. And and so we thought, okay, well, we flipped that round very quickly and we said, okay, we'll provide it free of charge 
but and will get rewarded for doing that through sponsorship. So we've been very fortunate to have gained sponsorship from some really big high profile companies in New Zealand. We have Milford Asset Management, Loan Market and Forsyth Bar as our principal sponsors. And that essentially pays our wages and our operating expenses and enables us to to provide the program free of charge into schools. Mm. We knew that we'd we'd struck a, a rich vein in terms of satisfying a need within the first two weeks of launching the program. I had forty schools contact me and say, "Can we use your program?" And that was that blew me away. I wasn't expecting that. I thought maybe if we got a couple in the first fortnight, that would be good. But we got forty, and I'd emailed the schools and said, "Hey, we've done this program." This is how it works. Are you interested? And that grew very quickly, kept growing quickly from there. And um, as of today, which is four years after we launched, we've got 730-odd primary and intermediate schools using the program, which is nearly half of all the primary and intermediate schools in New Zealand. So we're very happy with how that's gone so far in New Zealand. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a that's a huge growth in that time period as well because then you throw in there's been a big pandemic you know (laughs) for two and a half years and there's a lot that's been going on so that's awesome that it's grown in that way if people are listening and they're curious if their school has this available or you know if they they want to find out more what would be the best way um are you uh, website i guess is the best way for them to contact or Yes, it would. There's a contact form on our website, which is uh, websites www.moneytime.co.nz. So there's a contact form there. They're very welcome to email me directly if they like. I'm neil, N-E-I-L, at moneytime.co.nz. Certainly the teachers at school would have a good idea of whether or not the school's using it. It's usually the maths teacher or the deputy principal or the syndicate leader, the year seven and eight syndicate leader they're the ones who typically determine what curriculum is taught and how Mm. within the school we you mentioned covid that was actually a bit of a two-edged sword for us you'd think that because we're digital and we're self-taught that it would be easy for kids to use the program at home for schools that were already using digital resources and that were already using money time it was a godsend because they could just say, hey, kids, I've unlocked the modules, knock yourself out, you can do money time. And the kids love it. The kids love doing the program. It's highly interactive. It's fun learning. It's gamified. It's, it's, it's online. It's a lot of the things that kids like doing. And they're learning a really useful life school, now, and they understand that. They understand that it's an important thing to learn. So a lot of kids are highly motivated to do the program. Mm. So those schools... We're fine, but then you've got schools that were not very far advanced with the use of digital resources and and were really struggled with the remote learning thing. They, they struggled to even get maths and English taught mm. at, at distance. They just put their hands up and said, it's too hard. You know, we're just going to stick to the absolute basics and right. try and get through this. So we had a, I had 160 schools contact me within the first month, I guess, of COVID, the first lockdown. Half of them embraced the program and still use it. The other half were like, it's just too much. Mm. This is I've got too much on my plate. I'm really struggling just with the basics of managing remote learning. So they parked it. Right. 
and we, we're trying to pick those schools up again now. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, you can come back and revisit it, but it's great that there's that reception, I guess. And I guess for listeners, it would be interesting for them to be thinking through asking the question, does our school have it or, you know, could you ask for it? But then also I'm really curious about the supporter side because there might be people listening who go, this is really cool. I'd like to support it as well. So that's something that you'd be open to as well, right? Those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Particularly in terms of organizations or corporates that want to have a strong social responsibility message around financial literacy. And so I'm talking specifically about financial institutions like banks, Mm. real estate companies, insurance companies, superannuation, KiwiSaver. Mm. Uh, They're all all businesses or um, industries where knowledge of how their product and services work uh, is really important. And so having a better educated public leads to a stronger bottom line, ultimately. Mm. But it also gives them the opportunity to say, we, we think this is really important. We think it's really important that kids know this stuff. And so we're going to put our money behind it mm-hmm. and enable money to keep providing it free of charge. Yeah, that's great. Well, what we can do is in the show notes, we can put links to things. So if people are listening now, they can go through and then they can click and get to the website. So, <laughs> And it's been great. Um, I mentioned at the start, we've been getting to know each other, just thinking about structures. And this is where I think lawyers can add some value, is thinking about how do we unlock resources, funding, you know, thinking about different structure options. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch this space in terms of the future. Yes, yes. I've, I really appreciated your input on that to date. We, we're considering... Uh, forming a foundation or a charitable organisation to uh, receive and accept the the donations or sponsorships from these organisations so that they can have confidence that the money is going to be applied to teaching kids financial literacy in schools. Mm. And so um, we're looking forward to progressing that with you. Yeah, definitely. So what are your plans for the future? It sounds like you've had a lot of vision to go global. Can you describe where it's headed? Sure. We are really happy with how it's gone in New Zealand and we're going to use that as a platform to launch the product offshore. We have a distributor in South Africa who is marketing the program into South African schools. They're finding that quite challenging because financial literacy is not a general topic of conversation in South Africa. It's just not talked about at all by anybody and so they're having to create their own wind for their sales there. But they're making good progress, and I'm confident that they will get in, get themselves into schools there, and that um, we can make an awful, uh, awfully big difference for kids in South Africa. Uh, there's a lot of poverty there, as you'll be aware. So, really um, keen for those guys to be successful there. We also market the program into schools in the United States and Australia. We're just starting out in both those markets, and we're raising money as we speak to be able to build a a team to be able to do that successfully in in those two countries and then and then it's pretty much any english-speaking country from there on with the commonwealth countries are all have this similar financial system similar banking systems and so countries like india canada and the uk are obvious targets for us and then it's just a matter of time and resources to be able to start or get marketing the program in in those countries 
Yeah, that's great. The, the beauty of software and this sort of solution is that it's very scalable, isn't it? Like it can be accessed by a hundred or a thousand or 10,000. Like it's, there's not really the same limits as opposed to like, well, we make widgets and we're going to sell them. It's a different ball game. That's right. We built the program for scale. It's, it's the platforms designed to be used by hundreds of thousands of people. So we're, we're ready for as many as people that want to do it. So Neil, I'm a parent. If for some reason the school where my children go to don't have this right now, is there a way that I could still access it? Yes, there certainly is. Uh, and this happened just uh, as a result of COVID. We knew there was a lot of disruption in schools. And so we thought, let's make the program available for people at home. And so we developed a subscription model whereby people can go to our website and purchase either an annual license or a monthly subscription and they get to set up a parent account and then they load their children's um, email addresses in underneath that and then that means the child can work their way through the program on their own or they can do that with their parents assistance if the parent wants to be involved as well yeah oh that's great yeah i'm definitely gonna have to explore this for my own children i think because those skills they're just such a a core to what will help them have a you know prosperous and healthy and financially stable future Sure, I look forward to hearing what they think. Yeah. And and what you think too. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I've really enjoyed hearing uh, your life story <laughs> and going right back to the beginning. And what struck out to me actually was what you were saying, you know, when you were a young person at school, the influence that the principal had on that cohort of young boys and then decades later that it impacted you because the word of encouragement I got for you is think of all the children out there who are learning financial literacy as a result of doing this program and you personally may never hear from them but a decade, two decades from now we potentially are going to have a whole generation who are much further advanced in terms of understanding how does a startup work what is it like to you know have my own business or invest so I think that's a really cool legacy, and I just want to tatoko or encourage you in that because that seems to me like it is a movement that you're really, you know, there at the grassroots and you're founding it, starting it. So well done on that, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As it turns out, our vision is to financially educate a generation of children globally. Mm. So what you just said is exactly what we hope to achieve. Mm. That's great. Well, start in New Zealand and then expand out from there. <laughs> awesome. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Neil Edmund. I know there was lots of highlights for me, and I really loved his desire to have a meaningful impact on the world. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the other episodes, because there's more than 300 of those. And there's lots more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. Until next time.